Usually the crying doesn't happen until I start preaching. <laughs> but uh, we love it. You know what? Alex always used to say, if you ain't crying, you're dying. <laughs> we got a lot of sweet babies in our midst. That does not bother us at all. But um, we're so thankful again for the opportunity to come together as, as the people of God, as the body of Christ, to be instructed by his holy word. So let's do that now as we turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15. And if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis 15, 1 through 6 will be our text for this morning. <clears throat> this is God's word. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O oh Lord Yahweh, what will you give me as I go on being childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given, me no, since you have given no seed to me, behold, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, this one will not be your heir. But one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your seed be. Then he believed in Yahweh and he counted it to him as righteousness. Heavenly Father, we do. Just praise your holy name. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing the greatness of your name, the glorious grace that you have poured out upon your people, a woefully undeserving people, yet you have called us sons and daughters. We are so grateful. And now we just pray that you would soften our hearts to the truths of this text, that you would change our hearts through this text, and that you would be glorified in our time this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, we have so much to get to this morning, so very much to get to, including what many have considered to be the most important verse, not only in the book of Genesis, not only in the Old Testament, but perhaps even in all the inspired word of God. Of course, I'm talking about the sixth verse. Then Abram believed in Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So much to get to today. And thanks to my punting on the account of Melchizedek's from last week's exposition, that clock in the back, it's already taunting me. It's laughing at me in front of everybody. So let's dive right in. The introduction to the 15th chapter begins with these words, after these things. After what things? Well, after a great war, the patriarch found himself right in the middle of. After Abram went up and attacked Ketaliomor and the kings of the east and the dead of night, and not over monetary issues, not over territory concerns, not over who controlled the region or trade routes, not for political uh, retribution or national revolution. Oh, no. Abram wasn't sticking his nose into the world's affairs. He wasn't going out looking for a fight. But when the fight came to him, when Ketaleomor and the three kings took his nephew Lot and their plunder of Sodom, then Abram responded. Then he went up along with 318 of his own trained men and absolutely, according to the writer of Hebrews, slaughtered the kings. He slaughtered the kings. He decimated their armies. He took back the possessions. He rescued all the people, including his nephew, before delivering him right back into the hands of the king of Sodom. The king, who then had the audacity to try to negotiate with Abram, saying, listen, you can keep all the stuff, but I'll take the people. To which Abram replied, I want nothing from you. I want nothing from you. I will not take anything from the likes of you. I'm not going to give you, son of evil, which was his name, the pleasure of saying that I'm in your debt. I serve no man. I am enslaved to no man. I am indebted to no king. I'm not affiliated with any political party. In fact, my sole allegiance is to the Lord Most High. 
So take your people and take your stuff. I don't even want a thread from you, he told the king. Feed my men. Give the brothers Mamre their share. I will head back home to my wife now, okay? But not before he gives one more portion of the spoils to another king, right? A king who had no real part in this battle. He just kind of shows up on the scene out of nowhere. He pops up out of nowhere for three verses. Then we don't see his name for another thousand years. Of course, I'm talking about Melchizedek. Malchi, king of Sedek, righteousness, who was also the king of Salem, or Jerushalem, Jerushalem. Salem, of course, where we get the word shalom, meaning what? Peace, that's right. Malchi Sedek and Malchi Shalem. King of righteousness, king of peace. Righteousness and peace. Righteousness always comes before peace. Isaiah said, the work of righteousness will be peace. Paul told the Romans, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Psalm 85.10 says, loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Melchizedek was a king of righteousness and a king of peace. He was also a priest. A priest king. He was, chapter 4, verse 8, a priest of God Most High, who even blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Then Abram gave him a tenth of all. Now, again, so much can be said here. So much mystery, so much speculation, even over who this king of Salem was. Was he a ghost? Some people think he was a ghost. Was he an angel? Was he a mere man? Is he one of the sons of Noah? That's actually what Luther believed, that Melchizedek was actually Shem. Shem was around for 35 years after the death of Abraham, uh, 500 years after the flood. He was of the godly line, the righteous line of Noah that extended back to Eve's boy, Seth, the seed of the woman. Uh, In the same way, Melchizedek was a righteous man who had knowledge of the Most High God. There was not many men around like that in those days there. So Luther says Melchizedek is probably Shem. Well, as much as we love Luther, there's obviously zero scriptural evidence to support that. We have no way of knowing that. Just as, frankly, we have no way of knowing if this was the pre-incarnate Christ. Though, I believe that's a more realistic possibility here. In fact, I remember my grandpa talking about Melchizedek. Do you remember my grandpa, Chuck? Every time he would talk about Melchizedek, he'd get tears in his eyes. Okay? Because he believed Melchizedek was Christ himself. But on the basis of what? Well, really on the basis of Hebrews chapters 5 through 9, where it says that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, which is evidenced by Abram's giving a tenth to him, not teaching the first tithe according to the law, by the way. The law of tithing hadn't even come about yet. But rather, he was offering tribute to Melchizedek as his superior. Not only that, but Hebrews says, Melchizedek had no mother or father, no genealogy. He was also the only one who held the office of both priest and king simultaneously. He was a priest of God, and he was the king of Jerusalem. A king who, again, after this text, we won't hear about for another 1,000 years. When King David speaks of him in Psalm 110, a messianic psalm speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, where this King David, the first Israelite king to sit on the throne of Jerusalem since Melchizedek, by the way, speaks prophetically of a king to come who would sit on the throne of Jerusalem forever. A king that wouldn't come for yet another thousand years after David. And a king who did come 2,000 years ago. Of course, we're talking about the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yahweh says to my Lord, to David's Lord, one David acknowledges to be greater than himself, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. 
this Lord who would come not only as king, but also as priest. Priest. Yahweh has sworn, will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The one who is to come, David says, like Melchizedek, after the order of Melchizedek, is like Melchizedek because he's both king and priest, king of Jerusalem, king of the nations even, and priest of God most high, but with one glaring difference here. He wouldn't just be a king-priest during, during the time of Abram, not just during a lifetime even, but forever, forever. Again, I understand the speculation. I understand the debate. Uh, Melchizedek is a mysterious figure. He could be called the king of mystery, in fact. I've read a ton of resources, and everybody has their own opinions on who this guy is. The writer of Hebrews even says, concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, even to the Jews. So, in that case, let's just go off what we know for certain. Okay? Melchizedek was great. He was greater than Abraham. He was a, a great king. He had no genealogy. It doesn't mean that he didn't have parents, only that we have no record of his lineage. He was a priest. He was a mediator, an intercessor, one who both knew and recognized the awesomeness of El Elyon, the Lord Most High, and seemingly offered sacrifices and gifts to Yahweh. But what Hebrews goes on to explain for four chapters is that Christ was the ultimate fulfillment of the priesthood, of Christ being the ultimate fulfillment of, of the priestly office, as he was the ultimate sacrifice. Not that he made sacrifices on behalf of himself and his people like all other priests, but that he actually became the sacrifice. A perfect, once-for-all-time, sin-atoning sacrifice, which bulls and goats offered by mere men, including Levitical priests, at the giving of the law, could never fulfill. The, the, the blood of bulls and goats could never fully atone for sin. That's the big difference. And that's why I believe Melchizedek wasn't, wasn't a pre-incarnate Christ or Christophany, but rather a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of Christ. Plus, both David and, and the writer of Hebrews just uh, called Jesus a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He didn't, they didn't say that he was Melchizedek. But what I want you to take away from our time this morning is that he is a king of righteousness and a king of peace. Righteousness and peace. We could do a whole summer on Melchizedek, and it would be great. In fact, if you, if you want to learn more, I can send you a, a load of resources here, but that clock, it's against me as always. We have to move on for the sake of time, get to this 15th chapter, okay? Where Moses, uh, again, writes... After these things, after all we just referenced, the time for war, the slaughter of the kings, the rescue, and the time for peace, the victory, the spoils, the bread, and the wine, another foreshadowing, by the way, uh, and the tributes, the kings, Abram's pledging ultimate allegiance to Yahweh. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. After these things, after all the excitement, all the celebration, the conquest, the Lord appears to Abram. Now, in chapter 20, we'll see Yahweh referring to Abram as a prophet. Did you know he was a prophet? Well, he's a prophet. This is a prophecy here. Anytime you see the phrase, the word of Yahweh came to, dot, 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 that's letting you know a prophecy is about to take place. And this, my brothers and sisters, is a prophecy of peace. Okay? In what way? Well, aren't we grateful this morning that Yahweh is not silent? That, that he has chosen to reveal himself to us in many ways, in creation, the beauty of the earth, the heavens, the wonders of natural revelation, and, and then through special revelation even, uh, through in former times, prophets, angels, visions, even coming to dwell among us as God in human flesh, and now during these times, in his, his completed, sufficient, inspired, written word of God, this in itself gives us a peaceful reassurance. The, the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth is not silent. He knows his people. He loves his people. He calls his people, and he speaks to his people. He's speaking to you this morning, in fact. Did you know that? 
He's speaking to you this morning right through these words in chapter 15. He's speaking to you. Right through the prophecy of peace he's about to give to Abram. <coughs> sure, this is for Abram. This is a specific word to a specific man at a specific place and time. However, however, we can take the principles from this prophecy and apply it to our lives today. That's the beauty of the, the word of God. It's living and active. For instance, how wonderful is it that God not only spoke to his people through various forms of revelation, that he is not silent, that he didn't just create the world and put his hands up and step back, but instead is intimately involved with every aspect, every element of his creation. That he is absolutely sovereign over every single molecule in all of existence and that he knows every intricate detail of every life of every single human being, every single living thing, in fact. But every one of his people, including the deeds, the words, the thoughts of every human being who has ever lived throughout all of creation, how wonderful is it then that this same almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sovereign God of the heavens and the earth came to this man on this night with these words, do not fear, Abram. Do not fear. Oh, such sweet words. Such a balm to the weary soul when you consider the source. To be told by the Lord Most High who is in control of all things, do not fear, is one of the sweetest assurances a believer can have. And this is far from the only place he says it, by the way. And not only to Abraham, but also to all of his children. Someone has said the term fear, in either the form of fear not or fear God, appears in 365 places in the Bible. One promise for every day of the year. Now others blew that theory out of the water and said it. Actually, it's over 400 times. But regardless, regardless of the count, the message is the same. The people of God are not given a spirit of fear. So then, we are not to walk by fear, but by faith. God himself telling us repeatedly, listen, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Even last week, the things we talked about last week, a time for war. Sure, that was a dark text. It was a dark sermon, but it's a dark world out there. A frightening world even at times, right? But God says, even so, Fear not. Fear not. Do not be afraid. He said the same to Isaac. I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. And to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make your name, uh, I will make you a great nation there. Through Moses, to the people multiple times, do not be afraid. Yahweh said to Joshua, do not, be, do not fear or be dismayed. Then Joshua said to the people, do not fear or be dismayed. Think of David, how many dozens of times we hear this in the Psalms. Oh, how we love the Psalms for this very reason. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why not? For you are with me. You are with me. This is a sentiment repeated over and over and over again. Then David's Lord comes onto the scene. God now made flesh, comes down to the earth that he spoke into existence. And guess what? He tells those who are his. Do not fear, little flock. For your father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. Don't be afraid, disciples. It is I who am walking to you on the sea. Do not fear those who destroy the body but can do nothing to the soul. Do not be afraid, Mary. Go tell Peter and the others they will see me. After healing a young woman of her, or excuse me, after healing a woman of her affliction, on his way to resurrect a young girl, he tells a synagogue official, do not be afraid. Only believe. Believe. Fear is the opposite of faith. Do not be afraid, he says, only believe, have faith. Over and over in Acts and the epistles, even the revelation, God tells those who belong to him, do not be afraid, do not fear. And so he tells Abram here in this tent, do not fear, 
I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Do not fear. Why not? Because I am your shield, your protector, your rock, your mighty fortress. Does that mean you'll never get hurt? No. Mean you won't ever get attacked? No. You won't be maligned, slandered, hated, oppressed? No. Does it mean you won't go hungry? Does it mean you won't get fired, that you won't be poor? No, no, no. Does it mean you won't get cancer, some other disease? You won't get sick and die? No, of course not. Abraham experienced physical death, right? God's children are constantly suffering, even attacked, persecuted. In fact, many of the richest Christians throughout history are those who have lived lives full of affliction and poverty. Yahweh as your shield simply means that nothing will happen to you outside of his sovereign will. So don't be afraid. Only believe. I am your shield, he says. Now, some believe that this exhortation to not be afraid is due to a possible retaliation of those four eastern kings, but I don't think so. I don't think that's what the Lord is referring to here because of the words that follow. Abram, seemingly unconcerned about a revenge attack, says in verse 2, Oh, Lord Yahweh, what will you give me as I go on being childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? So it seems clear to me that the fear of Abram's heart, which the Lord knew altogether, was not the possibility of Ketaleomor retaliating against him, but that it might happen before Yahweh's promise of a seed would be able to come to fruition, okay? He said, listen, I know what you said when you brought me up out of Ur of Chaldees. You said my seed would be like the dust of the earth, but it's been quite a while now. A lot of time has gone by. And well, Sarah's still barren, I'm getting up there in age, if you know what I mean. Lot went right back to Sodom. Now all I have here is Eleazar, who was his steward, his business manager, like his agent. And Abram said, since you have given no seed to me, Lord, behold, one born in my house is my heir. That's the fear here. And Yahweh knows it. Abram is doubting. And he has good reason. He's over 80 years old now. But Yahweh says, do not fear. I am your shield. In other words, you can trust me. Put your trust in me. And that makes sense, right? If someone shoots an arrow at you or comes at you with a knife and there's a shield or something like that laying by, we'd grab that shield and we'd place our hopeful trust in its ability to protect us. Same thing here, but Yahweh is far greater than any physical shield. Do not be afraid. Rather, trust in me as the one who is in complete control of everything in this world. That's the metaphor here. Forget the kings. I know what you're thinking about. You're thinking about that seed. Trust me about the seed. Trust me. Then he says, your reward shall be great. I think this is an an unfortunate translation here. Uh, Both the Hebrew and the Greek seem to say something closer to, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Meaning, as we will see, it's the Lord himself who will be Abram's reward, okay? Which, even before exercising saving faith, uh, Abram already established as his greatest desire. Remember as he looked up at the heavenly city, the, the lasting city to come? The valley wasn't his reward. He told Lot, you go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. Abram wasn't fretting about land. The spoils of war weren't his reward either, were they? I don't want your people or your stuff, king of Sodom. I don't want a thread from you. I don't need anything from any man. Why not? Because I serve the one who possesses the very heavens and the earth. What do I want your stuff for? Okay? He doesn't need any more stuff anyhow. He's already rich. He's got gold. He's got flocks. He's got all the... But that's not his reward either. Abram's reward is God himself. God's provision, God's promises, that's where we find true contentment. However, it's natural for even faithful men and women of God to occasionally doubt, right? So when it looks like things are getting down to the wire in terms of reproducing, he starts to freak out a little bit. Okay, it wouldn't be the last time, though. A little fear starts to creep in, which it does for all of us, right? But he does the right thing. He talks to the Lord. He brings it before the Lord. Moses even uses his covenant-keeping name here in verse 2. Oh, Lord Yahweh, I'm childless. Eleazar, he's going to be the heir, isn't he? 
Now, let me ask you something. Are you worried about something this morning? Are you stressing out? Are you starting to fear? Are you weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer, our refuge. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. That's what he does with Abram. Okay, look how Yahweh responds by not only reemphasizing the promise, but even adding to it, expanding to it, giving Abram the ultimate cause to trust. Moses says in verse 4, Then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying, Eleazar will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. He could have said, man, I already told you this. He will be your very own son. What's your problem? But he doesn't say that. He just reassures Abram. Listen, it's coming. Then he even expands the promise. Verse 5. He brought him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens. Number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your seed be. Look up there. Look up. Look at the stars, if you are able to number them, which God knows full well Abram cannot do. Why, even today, with all the space programs, the thousands of high-powered telescopes, billions of dollars worth of satellites being sent out by renowned scholars, sent out from the finest educational institutions in history, though these days institutions which are full of people who don't know what bathroom to choose. But even today, with all of our advancements in technology, the most brilliant among us say, well, according to this study and according to that research, uh, we estimate there to be about... 100 billion stars. But just to be safe, we're going to say 200 billion stars. You know, give or take 100 billion. If they would have had a .2360, I would have believed them. That's a real summary of a report that I read this weekend. That's an actual report. 100 billion. Well, it could be 200 billion. The point is this. We can't count the stars. Just as Abram couldn't count the stars. Even if he started, he couldn't finish as the earth is rotating. He'd lose count over and over again. How frustrating that would be. 10,964. Oh, was that the right one? No. Now he's got to go all the way back. He's got to wait till tomorrow. Abram, the point is this. Abram, you can't even fathom the number of people that will come from your seed. And not just your physical descendants. I'm talking about your spiritual descendants. You have no idea how many people will come to know me through you and Isaac and Jacob, whom I will rename Israel. Why, there's even coming a time when an apostle named John will write these words uh, from heaven. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Nobody can count the multitude in heaven except for who? Except for the one who created them and saved them. The one who knows them all and named them all just as he did with each one of the stars in the heavens. Right? So don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, Abram. Trust me now, Abram. Look up, Abram. Where do you think all these stars came from, Abram? Well, so shall your seed be, Abram. Is that a great promise from our Lord? Are those sweet words of assurance from Yahweh? Ought such a promise uh, provide Abram with peace in his soul? A peace that surpasses all understanding? I'd say so. I think James Boyce's words on this section in particular were excellent. He said, one of our problems today is that we are always looking down. Essentially, we are looking at ourselves, and that leads to doubt. We look at ourselves and say, I don't see how I can do that. I don't see how I can believe what God is promising here. If we were in Abram's shoes, we would say, I don't see how I'm going to, to have children at my age. The problem is that we are looking at ourselves. We are not looking at the one who gives the promises God is uh, so uh, excuse me we are not the one who gives the promises God is so we need to stop looking down and start looking up 
We need to have our minds stretched by God's greatness. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. But what's even better is what happens next. Okay, look with me at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Then he believed in Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And there it is. Again, perhaps the most important scripture in all of Holy Rot. And why is that? Well, because it's the verse that gives us the formula for lasting peace. The prerequisite for peace. And I'm not talking about worldly peace here. I'm not talking about peace in the Middle East peace. I'm not talking about an LSD-induced give peace a chance peace. I'm talking about a peace that surpasses all understanding. Peace with God. An everlasting peace. Do you have peace with God this morning? Do you have peace with God this morning? Do you want to have peace with God? Well, here's the formula. Here's what's required according to him. Then Abram believed in Yahweh, and he, Yahweh, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. The key word I want you to take away this, in this verse is not Abram. It's not believed. It's not even counted or righteousness yet. The key word I want you to take away from this verse is the word it. It. I-T, it. Then he believed in Yahweh and he counted it to him as righteousness. God counted what to Abram? Answer, it. Then, <laughs> then Abram believed in Yahweh and he counted, credited, reckoned, imputed to his account. It. What? What is it? What did he impute, impute upon Abram's record here? What did he reckon to sinful Abram's account? Answer, total justification. That's the answer. Total justification, a legal declaration by God that we are no longer deemed guilty under the divine law but are forgiven and counted righteous in his sight. In other words, a right standing before an infinitely holy God on the basis of perfect righteousness which is counted as a free gift to our account. That's what Abram was given here in verse 6. How do we know this? Well, because again, Yahweh is not silent. Fear not. He speaks to his children, even today through his written word. For example, four times in the New Testament, this very verse is quoted. And the common theme in all of them is that all men and women are sinful and condemned. Yet, by sovereign grace alone, some of these men and women are justified. They are made right. They are declared righteous in the sight of an infinitely holy God and subsequently saved from his wrath. Not on the basis of anything they do, though. Not on the basis of anything we do. Not on the basis of their works, their sacrifices, their confessions, their creeds, their heritage, their lineage, but only, only on the basis of their faith. Faith, which is also given to them as a free gift. The faith is a gift. The perfect righteousness is a gift. And the it the justification on the basis of that perfect righteousness is also a gift. But don't take my word for it. Listen for yourselves. James says in chapter 2 of his epistle, you see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Faith works. Abram went on to have true works because Abram had true faith. True faith always produces good works. But ultimately, those works are our works. The works of the law done in the strength of the Spirit even. These works are not what justify us in the sight of a holy God. These works were simply the product of saving faith. How do we know that? Next text, Galatians 3. So then, 
Does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is a rhetorical question. Whose answer is the latter? We are not given his Spirit. In other words, justified, saved by works of the law, but by faith. And here it is again. Just as Abram or Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so know that those who are of faith, those are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would, what? Justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaim the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. That's the it of Genesis 15. Justification by faith alone. There's one more place. Romans chapter 4. And I'm going to have you turn there. You have to see this in your own Bibles. Don't take my word for it. Because I'm going to have you turn here because in it, Paul quotes Genesis 15 twice. You got nervous there that I was going to play that. (laughs) While you turn there, let me remind you of just how serious the doctrine of justification by faith alone is, okay? Martin Luther said, it's the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. When the article of justification has fallen, he says, everything has fallen. This is the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed. It alone begets nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. It is the master and prince, the Lord, the ruler, and the judge over all kinds of doctrine. Thomas Watson said, justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. An error about justification is dangerous, like a defect in a foundation. Justification by Christ is a spring of the water of life. To have the poison of corrupt doctrine cast into this spring is damnable. This is so crucial. This is so crucial to your everlasting soul that you hear this this morning. Our being justified by grace alone through faith alone. Not that we are saved by our faith, by the way. But rather, faith is the means or the instrumentality, instrumentation through which we are saved. The object of our faith is what saves us. Christ is what saves us, not our faith. Well, listen to Paul's words in Romans chapter 4, okay? He'll tell you what the it is in Genesis 15, verse 6. What shall we say then? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. You know, God hates boasting. He hates boasting. Yet anyone who says they can earn a right standing before him based on anything at all but the finished work of Christ alone is not only a liar, but a boaster. And here it is in verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, To the one who works, his wage is not counted according to grace, but according to what is due. And that's right. You go to work this week, you get a paycheck deposited into your account. You don't call up the boss and say, oh, thank you for the graciousness you extended to me by paying me for these 40 hours. Of course not. You don't say that. You earn that money. That's your money. You performed a service, you will get paid your wages, which is great for your bank account and your temporal life, but not so great for the unjustified when it comes to their sin account and eternal life, considering that the wages of sin, wages which all of our accounts were bursting with, is death. Yes. Likewise. Hello. She was waving, is what it was. It's death. The wages of sin is death. Likewise, even the so-called works that we perform apart from justification, the so-called righteous deeds, in the eyes of God, the only one whose performance review actually matters, said that our righteousness is as what before him? Like filthy rags, a filthy garment. It's actually used menstrual cloths. I know you all know that. In other words, if you believe that you are justified by your own good works or by your own righteous deeds, 
you will only have a pile of filthy rags to present as your legal defense as you stand before the almighty judge of your everlasting soul. That's all you're bringing with you. That's all you're bringing with you. On the other hand, Paul says in verse 5, and we're going to read this whole chapter. To the one who does not work, but believes upon him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. In other words, the basic prerequisites for justification or right standing before a holy God and subsequently peace with God are that you have to be an ungodly, unrighteous, totally incapable sinner who is spiritually unemployed. You've got to be out of work. In other words, if you believe that you are a godly man or woman capable of earning his favor based on anything but his absolute sovereign intervention in your life, then I'm sorry you are not able to be saved. He came to save the ungodly. He came to save sinners. He came to seek and save the lost, the unrighteous, not the righteous. He came to save those who are sick, those who need a physician, not those who foolishly think they are well. Paul also said, blessed is the man whose sin he does not take into account. In other words, Yahweh covers our sin. He forgives our sin. He takes our sin out of our account, but he, he doesn't forget them. He, he just removes them. He deposits them elsewhere. And in their place, he then adds to our account the righteous, righteousness he requires for us to then stand before him. A foreign righteousness. A righteousness that was not ours to begin with. Unless the Judaizers, Judaizers come, come in screaming, that's not so, Paul. He's already ready. He doubles down on this truth. Are, are we saved by our adherence to the works of the law? Negative. Verse 9. Therefore, is this blessing on the circumcised, those who have the law, or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised, he received the sign of circumcision. You see that? Works are a sign of true faith a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness may be counted to them, and the father of circumcision to those who, are not only of the, who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while he was uncircumcised. This is so clear. It's so clear. Isn't it clear? Well, let's keep reading. For the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For those who are of the law are heirs. Faith has been made empty and the promise has been abolished. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no trespass. For for this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be according to grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, a father of many nations I have made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead, calls into being that which does not exist, in hope, against hope, he believes, so that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall your seed be. Well, we just got done reading that in verse 5. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to do. Therefore, 
it was also counted to him as righteousness. Listen. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was counted to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be counted as those who believe upon him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over on account of our transgressions and was raised on account of our what? Justification. Justification. And there it is. In black and white. Divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. The it is our justification. Our being made right. Us, the ungodly man or woman, being able to stand before an infinitely holy God, not on the basis of anything we've done, but only on the basis of what we believe in whom we believe, in whom we have faith in. Namely, the one whom Hebrews calls the author and perfecter of faith, who then gives faith to those whom he chooses and elects and calls by grace alone from before the very foundations of the earth alone, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was delivered up to die for our transgressions, the one who took upon our sin, who had... Our transgressions, our sins, imputed to, reckoned to, or charged to his account as if he had committed them himself. And in turn, those who believe have his perfect record, his spotless life, his sinless life, his righteousness credited to our account as if we had never sinned at all. That we lived perfect lives. Paul, using Genesis 15, verse 6 as his primary example, is taking, talking about the great exchange here. The great exchange. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God, in whose sight we now stand absolutely justified. On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And it was satisfied once for all time, for all faithful men and women from the beginning of time. As the one who was, who, who, who was made to be sin took on the righteous wrath of his Father in heaven as he was hanged on that tree, as he was suffering under the weight of his own body, as he breathed his last, as he was separated from the Father for the first time in all of eternity so that, so that all who believed in him, all who would have their righteousness, his righteousness counted to their account, including Abram, whom Jesus said saw his day and rejoice, would never have to be again. This is true for all faithful men and women since Adam. For all of the seed of the woman, clear back from Genesis chapter 3, everyone who has ever truly believed, who has truly, like Abram here in verse 6, said, Amen. You know, that's what this word believe means. Amen. That's what it is. Abram said, you said it, and by your grace alone, I believe it. Amen, Lord. Can you say amen to Yahweh this morning? That's what I'm asking. Can you say amen? Well, I hope so. Why? Well, look at the results. Look at the very next words of Paul to the Romans. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Do you want to have a peace with the holy God this morning? No problem. Just be perfectly righteous. That's all you got to do. Righteousness before peace, right? Oh, you can't be perfectly righteous on your own? You don't have that ability? You've already blown it? There's nothing you can do to make amends in your own strength? Good. You're just the kind of person that Jesus came to save. Cry out to Yahweh today. Ask Him to cleanse you of your sin. To credit the righteousness of Christ to your account. I implore you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Because we do have the responsibility, like Abram, to believe. But again, this, even this belief is a gift from God. So cry out to God and ask him to help your unbelief. 
Ask him to give you the faith required in order to be justified in his sight. And I'll just ask you again, straight up. Will you believe? Will you believe this gospel of grace? Yes or no? There's no more putting it off. No more limping between two opinions. This demands a a verdict. And it demands one today. Will you personally believe in this gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone or not? He's the only way to salvation. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He said nobody comes to the Father but through me. The good news is for those who truly believe Yahweh has taken your sin debt and he has placed it upon his perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. And he has taken Christ's righteousness and he has reckoned that righteousness to your account so that the Father no longer looks at you as he looks at his enemy, as condemned, but now he looks at you as he does his own perfect son, as totally justified in his sight. Is this true of you? Is this true of you? I pray this is true of you. I hope this is true of you. If you hear his call through his word this morning and you never have, I would implore you, I would invite you on the authority of Scripture to respond to that call by faith and do it today. I'm not talking next year. I'm not talking next week, not even tonight, but right now. To believe in the promises of the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth that says he will make you a new creation, that he will save your everlasting soul today that you can have everlasting, eternal peace with him today. If you would but cry out to him for the forgiveness of your sin, if you would but turn from your sin, turn from this fleeting world, and turn to your creator by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. He is both willing and able to save your soul to eternal glory with him today if you would but cry out for his mercy and grace. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's have Casey and the music team come up and close us in musical worship and we'll pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. This is the day that you have made and you have by your grace alone not only given us the privilege to come together and worship and be instructed by your word, but have saved our everlasting souls, though we deserve the exact opposite. We're so grateful, Lord. We're so grateful for you. We're so grateful for your word, the promises of your word. We're so grateful for the testimony of Abraham. We long to see his face, but more so we long to see your face. And we rejoice this morning together as a congregation knowing that that's only possible because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's his name we worship and it's in his name we pray. Amen.